Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast which should talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well, I mean, I was sort of, I just, Jay Johnston? Really? <laughs> Did we manage to, like, manifest that? Because I don't think we should really, like, invoke things. Maybe we shouldn't choke in case it's true. I don't... That's how I am, Ed. How are you? Yeah, for uh, people who who missed this story, uh, this is not really a news story, but I guess uh, we should probably discuss it because you and I were just talking about it beforehand. I'm, and it was, uh, I'm shooketh. Still a weird thing. <laughs> Jay Johnston, who is a much-beloved uh, comic actor who was on Mr. Show in the 90s and you know, has, has been in basically every good big comedy since then in one role or another may or may not have been involved in the, the insurrection at the uh, Capitol building back in January. Uh, on Friday, I think it was, or Thursday, the FBI circulated a pair of images on Twitter saying, you know, we're looking for information. If you know who this man is, please get in contact. And immediately hundreds of people were just joking about, oh, that's Jay Johnston from Mr. Show, <laughs> or uh, that's uh, Choo Choo, the herky-jerky dancer, or whatever. And then various people who know jay johnston or who, or who have worked with him in in show business over the years started tweeting things or, or posting on instagram things that basically said yeah pretty sure this is him <laughs> and like i don't think it's been officially confirmed at this point but so uh, this is all like alleged that he was involved in this sort of stuff but like it the, the, the circumstantial evidence you know kind of points to it being him and that's just like incredibly weird to see someone like him who's like you know like a beloved alt comedy figure kind of like show up in that context in the the, the least expected context mm. choo choo why <laughs> why have you betrayed me it's just it's just very extremely strange news story I and mean, we live in strange times and <laughs> that was absolutely in terms of the combination of just like the insane and the like funny i think that that's that's got to be up there just to be like oh this like terrible event that happens <laughs> also involved beloved you know involved um jimmy pesto from bob's burgers like what that doesn't that doesn't seem right i mean props to the simulation for keeping it fresh that's all i'm gonna say mm, yeah it's a good pull <laughs> yeah it's like if you were trying to joke about what figures would show up at the at the insurrection Absolutely, Jay Johnston would have been a really funny one to pull, and just in real life is yeah, it's one of the many things in life where it's in the last couple of years where it's both incredibly funny and just kind of like weirdly disheartening at the same time, because also then it, that also entails like people talking about him apparently having had like a rough couple of years and like apparently he's been adjacent to that sort of stuff for a little while. He went on Gavin McGuinness's podcast or whatever like a few years ago and kind of like oh right that makes it make a lot more sense but also doesn't make it any less uh kind of like sad so how have you been emily like it's been a week or two since we last last spoke how's the last couple of weeks treated you well i mean it's all a bit of a blur um mm. as i'm sure it is uh the same for everyone i um well yeah <laughs> i keep thinking like well what what to say i mean i keep cycling between my moods every <laughs> couple of hours um and it's quite weird to just be sort of like feeling like this spinning on fire catherine wheel type being and then just fizzle out and then it all just sort of starts over again but mm. i have been reading i've been oh, good. yeah which is nice god god love a book it's genuinely the most immersive thing I realise it's like it's nothing like a good book. Um, if you can't be inside any other building other than your own flat, you know. Um, mm. I read uh, My Dark Vanessa, which I think totally lives up to the hype and is a really arresting book. And for anyone who has 
also, as you have, I believe, Ed, listened to the Lolita podcast from Jamie Loftus, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. thoroughly recommend, I mean, I re- I'm recommending it to everyone, but in particular in that light, recommending My Dark Vanessa. Oh, and Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid, which was long listed for the Booker Prize. Honestly, I'm like, I would not be surprised if Reese Witherspoon is already uh, sort of stroking the options. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because it just seems incredibly up her street. And it's in that kind of big little lies gambit where I really enjoy that genre where it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of nuance to the characters, but it doesn't take away from the sort of social class race structures that they're dealing with and yet it's not heavy like i i similar to uh girl woman other bernardina Varisto, uh which did win the booker it's just so remarkably funny and i i am i raw everyone could do the laugh right now ed i i strongly mm. believe and i didn't realize you know it it's something that i think books have been doing better than films for a long time and it's particularly refreshing now to be, you know, that you can tell great stories about air quote worthy subjects and it you, you still come away kind of uplifted and informed. Mm. And that has been a wonderfully refreshing, I have to say. And how are you, Ed? I'm good. I've also been reading a bunch. I read uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, which is a book that I've been trying to read off and on for about 10 years. Every previous sortie that I've tried, and it usually kind of like founders around 15 pages in, because Dune is a, it's a kind of a great sci-fi book, it's kind of a great work of imagination, but like there's just there's so many like made-up words in it. Like there's so much kind of like stuff that is important for kind of like building up this sense of otherness, but like, you know, it kind of throws you in the deep end and starts immediately talking about like the Bean Gesserits and Kwisatz Haderachs and things like that. And like immediately you're just kind of like, it's a very much a, a, a sink or swim situation. It's like, you're going to have to try and pick this up or it's just going to be just like completely, it's just going to mean nothing to you. And every other time, like I say, like I get 15 pages in and I'm like, I'm not enjoying this. And this time I really soldiered on, partly because of the obviously the, the forthcoming film, but also because it's just one of those big works of sci-fi fantasy that I feel like uh, I've been always missing out on because I always had like friends who were super into Dune and like I always kind of felt like, oh, this seems like something I would like. And I was really glad that I did manage to like hammer through it because I, I found it to be like a very rewarding uh, experience in terms of like its discussions about certain like ideas you know like notions of community and sacrifice and things like that they're all really interesting in it and also because no matter how many times i read it it's just really funny that there's a character in it called duncan idaho like <laughs> there's just in in all of this in, in the same way that it's very funny that you have kind of like a work of high sci-fi where the lead character's called paul um, <laughs> yeah, that never ceases to amuse me <laughs> and then when he gets uh, the chance to change his name it's like something to do with the mouse in the moon Sorry mm-hmm. to like proper Dune heads. I really do apologize. I tried my best with old David Lynch's uh the old the old classic and I just I couldn't I couldn't bear it. <laughs> so mm. you are braver and better than I am, Ed. Yeah. I, I also rewatched Dune this week and I enjoyed it a lot more once I understood what every, what the fuck was going on. <laughs> yeah. Um really Handy does that. help. Um <laughs> But every time I watch it and I, 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 this was borne out by like um, going back and looking at my old like little capsule reviews of it on Letterboxd over the years. Like the thing that I always I'm drawn to about just like one of the things that's just the most baffling choice is just the sheer amount of voiceover in it. Yeah, which is so very clearly geared towards them realizing this doesn't make sense. We need to explain it, but it being so banal in some cases that it just ends up being ridiculous. Like there's one bit where Max von Sydow's character, uh, Liette shows up and he meets Paul Atreides for the first time. And they have this discussion where like 
he's like impressed that Paul uh, is able to put on the still suits, which are the suits that allow them to go around Dune and like recycle the water of their body over and over uh, without needing any help. And then suddenly a voiceover says, he will know uh, he will know your ways as if uh, he was born on the planet or whatever. And it's just thinking, so you're just impressed that he can dress himself? (laughs) (laughs) The way they explain it just seems like so dumb and makes like Max Messina's character seem like such a complete fool that it just doesn't really kind of like work or make any sense and that was that kind of struck me like uh, that's like the major failing of the movie in some ways it's like in trying to explain itself it just ends up making everyone seem like a real simpleton in a way that um is very funny to the outside as someone like watching the movie and having read the books and kind of understanding what they're getting at but also it makes you think, yeah, this is really frustrating. I hope that the new version doesn't do it. But it is a very, it's a very cool work of design. I will say that 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 Lynch movie looks incredible. Yeah, it really does. Like huge swathes of it, and like I just think it's wild that of you know for something that is really intricate. I don't know whether David Lynch just thought like I'm gonna really go for the plot on this one, guys. That's not really mm. what I'm known for, and I'm just going to be fully ambitious and lean into what I don't know. Mm. Be interesting to see how uh, old Denis Villeneuve does it. I think he can definitely create an atmosphere in that yeah. sort of sci-fi way. So, but yeah, there is something kind of. I mean, the one bit that I fully understood of Dune is when uh, I think I think Paul says. If you walk without rhythm, it won't attract the worm. And I was like, oh yeah, I know that because it's sampled on a Fat Boy Slim track. And that's not yeah. really how you should have an end to a film. Yeah, that line always always amuses me. And like, it's there's a big thing in, in the book as well. There's like lots of sections where people are trapped in the desert and they're you know walking without rhythm in order to avoid attracting the worm. And every time I just, in my head, I just kind of started thinking about how funny it's going to be seeing like Timothy Chalamet just kind of like flopping around on the uh, sand in order to like, (laughs) it's just one of those things which it's just very hard to imagine it working in a film. And in my head, they just look like that picture of John Lennon walking down the street. Oh yeah. His legs are kind of like in all different directions and Yoko's off to the side laughing. Like, that's what I just assume it's going to look like, and I'm really excited. <laughs> I'm really excited for big, prestigious HBO version of, uh, or Warner Brothers version of Dune, to have people just kind of, like, walking around all gangly. Uh, which also um, reminds me of that bit in Little Women, where he and Saoirse Ronan are just sort of, is it dancing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> just sort of moving. That's also what I picture. So we'll go on to the the news proper i guess for this week and the big story of course was the golden globes which happened last week last sunday uh hollywood's uh smallest night in <laughs> many ways partly because you know the whole thing with the hollywood foreign press agency was um overshadowed by all the the talk of uh, potential insider trading or whatever that was going on with with people seeming to uh, oh. profit greatly from their membership and lack of diversity and all that sort of stuff but also because uh, everyone was doing it from home. I had a, uh, a lot of fun seeing people make fun of uh, all of the different setups that people had for their Zooms, like uh, Jason Stakers showing up in just a hoodie and just looking like he was very high, which is uh, a good look for him. He's got a good dirtbag look with his Ted Lasso moustache. <laughs> um, or Jeff Daniels being in a room full of doors, which is <laughs> kind of... Immediately, I was thinking, God, he's in the factory from Monsters, Inc. Just, like, no- nothing but doors around him. Um, where clearly, he was in, like, the family room or something. And he was just, like, and, and there was just something really funny about, you know, we're a year into this. There have been lots of events that have had to be done virtually over the last couple of years, both in, in, in work, in politics, in, in entertainment. And no one's yet to find any elegant way of kind of handling it all and there is something very funny about the kind of like flailing attempts and some of their ideas that just completely were fell flat like having unrelated stars kind of get broken out into like sessions where they would talk to each other and like Bob Odenkirk would have to try and make small talk with Al Pacino or whatever it's kind of like no one's no one's happy about this (laughs) this was a bad idea but I don't know I'm 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 in favor of like the uh 
the Golden Globes just kind of like stumbling through bad ideas uh, if they end up being, you know, diverting as those were. And, you know, the awards themselves were kind of uh, uninteresting for the most part. So, like, it was just it was just kind of like fun watching them flail. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was the worst Zoom quiz you'd ever been to. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) anything that could go wrong did go wrong. And it wasn't in this kind of knowing oh, you know, this could just be a sort of meta comment and that it is, they're leaning into the fact that they're kind of, we're just an excuse to have a party and some people get statuettes and who really sort of pays massive attention to us anyway. But it was definitely, oh God, it was, I mean, I really feel for whoever it was running it, but at the same time, oh my God. Like, and and it was just things where it was like, you know, the kind of official, like, tweets that were going out, trying to say that Amanda Seyfried's dress was inspired by Rosebud from Citizen Kane. And you're like, no, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think it is. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think you're reaching is what you're doing there. Because I half mm-hmm. expected to see her in some kind of Bjork Swan-esque um, sled attire, <laughs> which, you know, would have been amazing. But no, it's all still kind of weirdly po-faced. And then there's this horrible stuff about, I really felt for Anya Taylor-Joy because mm. there was kind of a write-up in sort of HFPA text about her being one of the sort of women of colour and she describes herself, yeah. you know, she identifies as a white Latina, which is totally fun. Also, Ed, like, you know, Daniel Kaluuya being um, muted when he was sort of accepting. Oh, terrible. But also, like, the fashion was just... Because <laughs> I do like a dress, Ed. I can't help it. And people sort of... Again, I felt for Anya Taylor-Joy because she looked perfectly nice in a sort mm. of, like, Veronica Lake way. But, some pe- you know, but we're so starved of anything. People were like, iconic, blah. And it's like, I don't think it is, really. Like... <laughs> It's um it's a very nice green dress and you know she got to wear lots uh, she got to wear lots of diamonds that were worth a lot at home <laughs> but mm. you know I don't really but it's just such a weird time for awards season because the whole point of that is to be seen and to push people into cinemas and to make money and I don't know about you, but I couldn't really give a toss. Mm. Like I don't, I don't miss them. And I think before we've sort of noticed over the past few years, it's like, oh well, here we go again, and we'll have the same kind of. This should have won. Oh, I'm really glad these won. Like the narrative's just been really chewed over too many times and just regurgitated. And I think. We'll, it'll be interesting to see if like new generations of publicists bring in kind of different campaigns because that's essentially what it is like it's it's if you run a good campaign mm. that's how sorry everyone you know <laughs> big hot take here but they're not in any way democratic these awards no. and I think the only moment that felt genuinely surprising in such a long time was Olivia Coleman winning her and seeing that and like every so often people saying like this was a year ago and I'm like oh my god I mean what a year but also what how is that gonna be it's it's just interesting to see what and and to kind of imagine a world without awards Ed I guess is the point where I'm trying to get to Mm. Uh, Parasite was also kind of a big joyous thing as well yeah but like those were like you know consecutive years and then other than that it's like it's like the only other notable thing was like moonlight winning but only because yeah. it was such such a farrago <laughs> such an absolute kind of calamity on the night and kind of got overshadowed by the mix-up and everything um but yeah, yeah like you're talking about three very pleasant surprises in you know 20 years where or so where like nothing like massively out of the ordinary has really happened and yeah it does feel as if because so much of the you know so much of the campaigning that occurs for awards is stuff that we don't see or that you know that people who are who follow this stuff from outside of the industry 
or at least from outside of the academy don't see, which is the glad handing. It's people going to special screenings where you get to, you know, be in the same room as the people who made the movie. Yeah. And you get to talk to them and you get the sense of like, oh, yeah, like, and you can kind of they get to work their charm on you, which, you know, that's kind of like a major part of it. And then that's what builds a lot of the buzz in addition to, you know, the film's being good. And obviously people can't really do that as much. And there's something inherently a lot cheaper about doing that stuff over zoom both you know monetarily and also in terms of the, the you lose the glamour of yeah all of that stuff just just doing it remotely so i think that has contributed a lot to a a kind of a muted sense around the award season and also because you know a lot of movies got delayed out of award season that maybe would have come out or there's just been this kind of like weird thing where there are movies like like Minari, which won Best Foreign uh-huh. Language Film, um, uh, ridiculously, as we've discussed previously. Not because the movie's not good, uh, for people who are unaware of the controversy, but because of the fact that it's an American movie. It just happens to star Asian people, mm-hmm. um, which yeah, is just ridiculous. But, you know, like that's, that's a movie that's getting a lot of buzz, but it's, you know, coming out in a few theatres and it's available to rent, but there's not that same sense that everyone's going to see it that you would have got even if it was just having a limited release where there was that buzz of people like getting to see it in as it rolled out gradually and building the excitement there's just not quite as much of a sense of that with it being available to rent for everyone and they uh, so there is this like everything about it just feels very very muted the only upside i guess so far is that the transparent awards plays that are Hillbilly Elegy and Mank yeah. have so far not delivered on those fronts. Like Mank, I don't think won anything at the Golden Globes, and um, it was very funny when David Fincher just te- kept taking shots every time they lost, um, <laughs> which was a very funny thing to see. And Hillbilly Elegy, like it got the uh, the acting nominations that were kind of expected, but it really feels as if that thing has just withered on the vine. Uh, and which is you know fine by me it's not a very good movie um it it does feel like very weird like people aren't putting out their best stuff at the moment because they feel like it will get forgotten in this weird quiet year for for movies but also the stuff that's out there feeling as a result kind of unimpressive as a result absolutely and i think the thing about awards that i've realized is any film i think that deserves an award particularly an oscar is already kind mm. of better than the yeah. oscars um oh yeah. so we'll go on to our next story which was the announcement that edie falco who uh obviously great actress who's been in many many great things most obviously uh the sopranos but also she was very very good in uh nurse jackie a show that i wasn't massively sold on but i thought she was she was fantastic in it has been cast as Hillary Clinton in the forthcoming series of American Crime Story, which is going to be about the Monica Lewinsky scandal and the impeachment of Bill Clinton. She's going to be playing Hillary, which is, I think, a very strong casting. Some people seem to think that it was like obvious casting, which I don't think it necessarily is. Like I've never thought, oh, you know who could play Hillary Clinton? Mm. Um, and, and had E. Falco jump to mind. But she is a uh, fantastic actress obviously and someone who i think could really bring uh, a lot to that role particularly obviously it depends on how they play it but if they i don't know emphasize emphasize the political animal that i think hillary clinton is often seen as someone who's very or at least was for a year seen as very kind of like savvy and uh calculating i think she could bring a lot to that um particularly if they really want to focus on the i the aspects of like the tension in the Clintons' marriages, like she's she's got a lot of uh, she's got a lot of experience playing the wife of someone who maybe has a lot of, <laughs> and a lot of secrets. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder how much that swung it because I'm totally with you, Ed. When I saw the news, I was like, oh, okay, it was not obvious for me at all because I think Edie Falco's made a name for herself not just in Carmela Soprano, but like you said, in Nurse Jackie, and. Oh yeah, Horace and Pete. I was struggling to remember the name of it because mm. for many reasons I am essentially deleting a lot of <laughs> that, you know, anything to do with Louis C.K., to be perfectly honest. Yeah. But she's, for the most part, played like these incredibly sort of trying to find a word other than gritty, Ed. Mm-hmm. But like, essentially sort of 
strong, outspoken women. And, you know, outspoken is definitely not something I would put to Hillary Clinton. But it's mm. not to... Certainly not during that era of her... Hell no. ...of public life, yeah. And I think the political animal thing is a really interesting point because currently re-watching The Sopranos myself, Ed, as I believe I've mentioned, and mm. I forgot just how brilliantly nuanced Carmela's character is in kind of her willful ignorance and mm. or at least the kind of times where you know she could probably in many ways get out quite simply if she just changed her tastes <laughs> and yet she mm. does have a lot of strength and appearance and self-possession so yeah love it and it's not to, and I'm not saying that like it was a shock and not a natural sort of choice to me because I have any doubt in terms of Edie Falco's um, capabilities. But as I mentioned, rewatching The Sopranos and getting towards the end of series five. And I just thought when I heard the news, I was like, someone else, but I can't quite put my finger on it. And then the episode of The Sopranos I'm watching, Tony goes, oh, you're Annette Benning." Mm-hmm. Yes, I am Annette Benning, And I was like, oh, fuck, that's who I was thinking of. So it's this weird kind of meta crunch of how I happen to be um, uh, presented with exactly who I was failing to remember by myself. So, yeah, Edie Falco's co-star in that one amazing episode of The Sopranos, because they're all amazing. But um, the test dream. And mm. I just think there's a little bit more in terms of I think a resemblance and I I think the voice as well is going to be really interesting not to say that you know if you are playing someone directly it doesn't you don't necessarily have to resemble them and again it's not to say that Edie Falco isn't talented I just I just saw Annette Benning, I think because there's more of a or even Joan Allen. What's Joan Allen doing? I miss her. But that kind of, mm. I think I think there's so much kind of like crackling under the surface. And like Ryan Murphy, all right, yeah, Hollywood, yeah. I, I mean, it's a bit of a, <laughs> it's very strange looking back at how much I was clinging to that, Ed. But I, in terms of Ryan Murphy properties, I think American Crime Story is incredible in terms of what they managed to do. And, you know, Versace is still one that really sticks in my mind. And, you know, it gave a lot of actors a really brilliant chance to do a good turn at a character who happened to be based on a real person. Like, you know, with hmm. um, I'm thinking of Penelope Cruz, who, you know, yeah. is, of course, not Italian. <laughs> <laughs> she's just like oh yeah she's like mediterranean or something no completely no that's so d- anyway oh god i'm so it like I hate everything but also uh sarah paulson i thought was really amazing in in OJ. david schwimmer like come on it's not like anyone was like mm. oh yeah david schwimmer's definitely going to be the guy to play rob kardashian yeah oh so i don't know i'm i mean i'm totally on board now but I think just to see her, just just to see Edie Falco prove me completely wrong. Yeah, I'm just looking at the cast list for some of the other roles in it, and there's some other kind of casting that seems a little counterintuitive, which could but could still work. I think you know, like just because something doesn't seem like it's worked doesn't mean that it couldn't work brilliantly. Yeah. But the biggest one, I think. What do you think about this? Bill Clinton being played by Clive Owen. Oh, whoa. Definitely not who I would have thought of. <laughs> no, definitely not who I would have thought of either. And to age... I mean, I guess they were all... I mean, Beanie Feldstein as well, I think, is a really interesting mm. choice for Monica Lewinsky. And I'd really love to see her in something purely dramatic. Um, yeah. So I'm genuinely excited for that. I think it's also, like, in terms of resemblance, it's quite sad because there aren't many actors of that kind of who basically look like Monica Lewinsky including body shape mm, yeah, which is you know a, a dire state of affairs 
I'm trying to think who I would cast as Bill Clinton. Mm. The the only one, the first one that came to mind, but only because I know he already did play him, was um, Dennis Quaid in The Special Relationship, the third third part of the um, Peter Morgan trilogy about uh, Tony Blair, where I think there, like, again, physically it's not totally there, but something about the swagger and, like, the movie car and movie star kind of charisma that I think was a large part of what propelled Clinton um, for his, his political career. Like, that's the sort of thing that you really want, and that's the, thing, that's the thing I think that Clive Owen would bring to it, because I do feel like he does have a lot of that. He's a very captivating screen presence. For sure, that totally tracks. How about John Mulaney? <laughs> it would certainly it would certainly lend a nice meta edge to his uh, comeback kid uh special uh also like when you were talking about uh, annette benning i thought that there's a kind of a nice there'd be a meta thing there as well because obviously she was the lead in the american president or the, the, the female lead in the american president so like that's kind of that would be a fun progression from uh, girlfriend the president to uh, spurned wife of the president. <laughs> what a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> Our next story is... Uh, the story. It, it's kind of a couple of, of interrelated stories, but the, but the main one is that um, Paramount Plus launched this week, which in and of itself, not that exciting, because Paramount Plus is just a reskin, essentially, of CBS All Access, the CBS... Streaming service that brought the world uh, the new Star Trek shows and pretty much nothing else. Uh, and the good fight. The good fight's good. But they've relaunched it and their whole thing is like it brings together all of the various things that uh, Viacom own at this point under uh, the apparently most recognisable name they have, which is Paramount. And so it's got all the CBS stuff, it's got Paramount movies, it's got Nickelodeon stuff in there. It's probably not going to be around in three years' time because I can't Im- I can't imagine it's going to compete against uh, Disney Plus, which obviously has way higher brand name recognition than Paramount Plus. But separate to this, of this streaming service that I can't imagine doing very well, it was the news going around um, on Twitter that because Paramount have launched this service and they're obviously trying to stack it with as much of their own IP and stuff they own the rights to as possible, a bunch of their movies are now out of print in the Criterion collection. They've clearly pulled the rights to them from Criterion so they can't sell them anymore. They can't produce new editions of stuff of fairly big movies by Criterion standards, including Don't Look Now, Nashville, which is kind of like one of their big kind of marquee titles a couple of years ago, Harold and Maud. Um, oh, I love that film. I know. I uh, I panic bought a Blu-ray of it as soon as this news broke. I was like, shit, I should actually get that because I love that movie and I don't own it on any <laughs> format. What were some of the other ones? Uh, La Dolce Vita, um, which is kind of a quintessential param- uh, criteria movie. I think it's still available as sort of their big Fellini set that they just put out, but they don't no longer put out the standalone of it. Mm-hmm. And Rosemary's Baby as well that was kind of like the other one so some fairly major heavy hitters there and obviously criterion put out a lot of stuff they've got lots of deals with lots of different companies and you know they'll be they'll be fine they have their own streaming service so like i, I think they'll probably be okay especially as like the market for home media kind of like narrows and narrows like they become an even bigger fish in an even smaller pond <laughs> as the years go on but I did find that to be quite interesting as like a side effect of all of these different studios and conglomerates launching their own streaming services is that it does mean that it does have these kind of like ripple effects out as all these people think, you know, how do we entice people to sign up for our service? It's like, well, we have to try and restrict people's access. Really, we have to restrict people's access to our stuff, to you just our you? streaming service, because ultimately in their eyes it's more valuable for someone to sign up for Paramount Plus and have a recurring subscription than for them to buy one copy of Nashville on Blu-ray. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's that's a very unsettling thing, I think, about the future of 
media and, and particularly in like the last weeks like everyone in and their mother like discovered about nfts non-fungible tokens um uh, and all that. that kind of like blockchain stuff where it's all about like you know kind of earning these weird impermanent digital things like it does it does point to uh, an increasingly non-corporeal future <laughs> which is like <laughs> it's kind of how it's kind of how the everything's been trending for years and years and years but like this feels like you know one of those accelerations of it i guess do you think and this is me speaking as someone who has only earlier today discovered what an nft is Mm. because Lindsay lohan was talking about one she did and i didn't understand do you think it really is the future though or is this like is this mini discs again yeah it's hard to tell with these sort of things isn't it because like i would have said the same thing about like bitcoin years ago and i still don't entirely believe that bitcoin's kind of like a a thing that's like destined for a long life but it's lasted longer than i would have expected Mm. um i could definitely see it being like a big thing in the forthcoming years just because it's a way and various people have been having this discussion over the last couple of days it's a way for artists to make money at a time when that is becoming increasingly hard to do. Yeah. Be- because streaming services, particularly for musicians, because the big thing this week was like the Kings of Leon <laughs> releasing their new album yeah. as an NFT. And for people who, d- who don't know, and I'm going to explain this very, very badly, but um, an NFT, non-fungible tokens, are essentially digital art or images or videos that people sell like one-time copies of so the example the thing that explained it to me was that the N- the nba have been doing this where they sell like highlights from games to people so you can pay twelve hundred dollars to earn to own the digital like image video clip of lebron james dunking something particularly well or whatever and you then own that and then it's watermarked it's kind of locked in the blockchain and so that you own that and then it appreciates in value over time i guess and other artists have done this and think kinsley will put out their their album in that way and the idea being that because these things are rare they're valuable because they're one-offs and so that is a way that artists have been trying to kind of like generate monies through this kind of like crypto art where you generate this this one digital thing people spend hundreds of thousands uh, of dollars on it and then you can make money in a way that you maybe couldn't do if you uh if you you know were just trying to rely on streaming or whatever it's it's very similar essentially to you know when when the wu-tang clan did that one disc of like an album fucking martin screlly bought it. like it's the same basic idea um though though theoretically i guess you know it's then locked up and then people can't disseminate it and share it I so, think you explained that beautifully, Ed. I just wanted to say that's a, oh, thank you. that's a great explainer. And I was just, you know, I was trying to think how I'd explain it myself. And it's like, it's something like they've made just for you, but you can't give it to anyone else. And it makes you feel special. But that's kind of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Wu-Tang came to mind for me as well. But yeah, you're right. It's it's the only thing that I could also compare this to is a William Gibson thing back in 1992 um agrippa a book of the mm. dead which is a semi-autobiographical poem but what it was is it it was on a it was on a floppy disk and then it encrypted itself after you read it once um right. and then the book itself faded because of the chemicals it was treated with on the night so like an incredible like artwork but now we've managed to do that as a species using nfts digitally and for profit (laughs) well Mm. done everyone but i get it i do i do feel for artists who are trying to make actually make money and preserve their ip but i don't know i just i've never felt more like a luddite ed i think i just Mm. i don't see how it's gonna and i and i know i keep coming back to mini discs but it's one thing that takes me out of strange days is like oh yeah this is so futuristic and then it's all on mini discs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very it's very weird. I think as as someone who's always been interested in in technology and has to keep abreast of that sort of stuff just for my job, like is this something I'm ever going to have to worry about? I, I don't think I'll need to worry about NFTs too much, but who knows? Mm-hmm. 
I do find it very interesting, and it's like you know, it's an incredibly cyberpunk sort of thing, fittingly enough with it, the you know the Agrippa stuff and, and William Gibson, um, you know, the idea of of art being generated in this way, and and like I have nothing but sympathy for artists who would want to try and you know make money through doing that sort of stuff. Um, the environmental concerns of it, because obviously like like Bitcoin and blockchain, you know, like it's very energy intensive, so that sort of stuff obviously like infuriates me. But yeah, it's 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 it is a very curious kind of thing that that we're kind of like approaching a period of just maybe not an end of physical media, but of uh, the end of its primacy. Which maybe we've already reached that point. Maybe like just like we've been in that state for like the last four or five years. But because people keep putting out Blu-rays, it doesn't feel like it. But but also it kind of has that weird thing where it's a rare case of a digital thing where you actually do own it because that's always kind of like the weird thing with owning things digitally is that usually you don't actually like you you rent you own the rights to a thing but that doesn't mean that the company that sold you the digital version of the movie or the digital version of the game can't for some you know can't take it away from you at some point you know the nfts thing i guess theoretically you you genuinely do own it because you own the rights to it which is is interesting in its own way and you know kind of a does seem to push into a new realm of like our understanding of ownership as it re- uh, refers to digital you know to art art that is disseminated digitally like that and the other uh piece of news related to criterion for this week uh which i thought was interesting again in terms of pointing to the state of things was that it was announced that they were going to be putting out a bunch of Amazon Prime movies on disc. So they're going to be putting out Mm. recent Amazon Prime movies like The Sound of Metal with Riz Ahmed, A Time, uh, it was a very good documentary. Those were like the two main ones. And this generated in, in my kind of film circles some gnashing of teeth because of, you know, like Criterion is this very as we've discussed in the past in fact you know we did a whole episode where we kind of criticized them for this but like they have sort of an air of respectability about them and they're seen as like a canon so them putting out discs of recent movies from a big corporation you know struck some people the wrong way but i looked at it and i kind of thought that seems like it's probably that probably makes business sense for them um to kind of like get that as an extra revenue stream and it's not out of step with stuff they've done in the past like they've done that with ifc in the past where they put out like the blu-rays of of boyhood and che and you know they've done stuff with netflix with the irishman and uh, rolling thunder review and hulu with um minding the gap so like it's not out of character for them and it certainly feels like a smart move on their part to think you know Amazon are never going to put out discs of these movies because they only care about people signing up for the streaming service. But, you know, they could do a really good job on making those movies look pristine through being released on a disc and they can do all the supplementals and stuff like that. They can give those movies a place in, you know, the physical world. And that's probably makes, that's probably worth it for them to kind of get that relationship going. Even if like, you know, the sound of metal is not quite on the same kind of like level as seven samurai or whatever mm. it's an interesting one isn't it because i guess it's kind of like oh no i don't want to go diving into semantics again but it is a bit like well what does criterion mean and mm. just from a branding point of view like what's their ethos because i don't want to say like the sound of metal is you know that that otherwise would be I can imagine a very Criterion film. It's the Amazon thing that kind of, you know, if it if it were made by a different production company. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I don't know. I feel like it's increasingly hard for everything that we've just been saying in kind of like NFTs just there to, like particularly when it comes to physical media, like you and I, I think now are more just like, Oh God, we just have to get it so that we have so that we have it, so that we own it, so that someone mm. can't, you know, <laughs> the stream can't be taken away from us. Whereas before, like way back in the day, you know, I was like, 
oh yeah, I've got like tartan DVDs and I've got Peccadillo and you know, like all of those little um yeah, just the companies, like their little logos winking out at me, the DVD spines. And now I just keep looking at my DVDs and I'm like, I still have so many and why why do I have them? But it, it now it's like, okay, so what else are you providing to people? And is it as curated as you like to make it out? Because one of my favorite Instagram accounts is Fake Criterion. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. think, oh, yeah, maybe you mean that's not in the. Oh, yeah. So I guess it's like, what do you need to do to get into the Criterion collection these days? Mm, I think also one of the things that's interesting with, with Criterion is that they have, through the Criterion channel, their streaming service, they are broadening out that sort of stuff so even though not they so they will have movies up to watch that aren't technically in the the collection but Mm. you know they have rights to because they've negotiated it through some other company like uh, cinema guild or or whatever so they you know and we've talked in the past about like um lack of diversity at the company which they have done a lot to address in in recent years i know that um they hired ashley clark who is a black british um, critic and, and writer who now handles a lot of their curation. I think he was behind the Afrofuturism thing that they're doing on their channel now and Black Westerns. Like he is, he, they, they, they clearly are taking steps to you know try and put more work out there through whatever form they have, whether it's putting it out on a disc or putting it out on this, this, the streaming service and drawing attention to that sort of stuff. So obviously they are trying to do more, which is which is very good. And I think that the the thing with like them putting out movies by streamers or whatever it's like that to me seems like a very calculated move on their part which is literally them then looking at it and saying we need to try and get as much like money in as possible to kind of keep going obviously they're very successful at what they do and really they don't have that many rivals like there are companies like arrow or whatever that are still around yeah but like they're they don't have quite the same sort of reach you know there isn't a arrow section of a barnes and noble like yeah. you go into a barnes and noble there is literally a criterion collection section so they need to do whatever they can to kind of keep solvent and to keep ahead of these sort of things and, and it just makes sense for them to go for these companies that for their own financial interests have no interest in putting out like netflix doesn't have any reason to put out the irishman on blu-ray mm. because as far as they're concerned it's it's one of their streaming movies but, you know, Criterion would be like, well, it is a new Martin Scorsese movie. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who probably want to see this in the highest possible quality and not have to, you know, pay for a Netflix subscription. Why not let us handle that? And it just kind of make makes sense for them financially, because obviously it's, it's probably going to be a lucrative partnership for them to work with these big streamers. And also, I think from a curation point of view, it just makes sense for them to want to put out these kind of movies that either are from major filmmakers or featured like major stars and you know get great reviews that otherwise you know could get lost in the shuffle that honestly you know like something like the sound of metal would probably get a lot more attention from being put out on a criterion disc than you know being one of the many films that yeah. amazon put up on their streaming service that people just completely miss and that's a weird kind of way around isn't it like that we've got to the point where streaming is impenetrable (laughs) so it's kind of there and available but to actually get above the crowd you need a bit of physical media oh it's a funny old world isn't it Mm, yeah so we were going to do a topic but uh we just realized that we spent like 50 something minutes talking about the news so uh this is an ups all news episode i guess uh for your for your delectation, uh, we will do a, a, a topic next week. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, I've got a podcast to recommend because mm. I have also been reading, but I feel like that would be a better recommendation for the topic that we are planning to do. It turns out I just have so much more about Edie Falco to say than I thought I did initially which was foolish of me ed foolish talk about her for hours um so the podcast that i have to recommend is so you remember that man with the app ed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
some absolute geniuses have uh, created a podcast about him, which is utterly gripping. So it's called The Jeremy Renner Files. And it <laughs> is a wonderfully tongue-in-cheek investigation into someone who is genuinely flying under the radar as one of the most chaotic people in Hollywood. Mm. Because I didn't realise how deep this goes. Like, the extent of his chaotic, antic energy, just vibes. It's pure vibes. And I didn't realise, for example, that Jeremy Renner uh, trained as a makeup artist Mm. and is like specialises in women's makeup in particular and yet is such a misogynist and all was on a reality show about up-and-coming actors Seth Rogen drops in because of course he does I love that Seth Rogen's basically kicking back during uh lockdown and is like yeah I'm gonna get really good at pottery and just have mm-hmm. a blast on people's podcasts um something that we could all learn from I think is Seth's example but I I've only just started to scratch the surface having uh, got myself one episode in and I can't wait to, I can see myself absolutely burning through these. So that is the Jeremy Renner files. Cool. I am going to recommend, uh, fittingly enough, because we just talked about them a little bit, I'm going to recommend a series of movies that are currently on the Criterion channel. There are a series of documentaries by the Italian filmmaker Vittorio De Sita who was a documentarian who made like, a bunch of documentaries about life in, in Italy in the uh, 1950s. Um, ten of them are kind of like collected together in this collection, and they're all these wonderful, short, ranging from sort of 10 to 20 minute long documentaries that are cinema verite, like just a, a title card at the beginning, giving you some sort of context, and the rest of it is just watching people, you know, bringing in the harvest, catching fish, kind of hunkering down while the volcano is going off and what's incredible about them is like rhythmically they're so like compelling in the way they're edited particularly the um the one about tuna fishing where it's really kind of like keyed to the rhythms of the men's uh, activities as they're catching the fish and you know like obviously that di- like their catch dictates the way in which the movie moves but also they're incredibly beautiful they're all shot in widescreen um it's very much the equivalent of just imagining someone going to like i don't know going like to an aldi with a with an imax camera or something you know like the idea of just like capturing people's lives and the kind of the greatest fidelity and detail possible and it and it, it, it lends kind of like this grandeur to the everyday that i find really compelling and really beautiful this idea that you know, just seeing people going about their daily lives in on these small isolated islands in, in Italy in the 50s is worth capturing in such detail. And uh, I think they're all they're all like really, really incredible. I particularly like I think it's called Sulfurama, which is one that's all about sulfur mining. So there's lots of incredible footage of miners kind of like going down, digging things out and endangering their lives in order to kind of bring out sulfur and they're, they're all just great you can watch them all in like two hours because they're all so short and you you will not be disappointed uh if you if you choose to do so so that's the films of vittorio de sica which are all currently streaming or that those 10 are currently streaming on the criterion channel if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player from spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help a great audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me